roughly 160 years since David reigned. It'll be roughly 120 years before the fall of Israel, taken captive by Assyria. Which means it's roughly 255 years before the fall of Judah. And we are in a place of really complete political refurbishment. But let me start with this. I had a grandmother. Actually, I probably had more than one. I actually had two that I know of. (laughs) But my grandma, she called herself Grandma Moo. I'm not really sure why. Her name is Cecilia. She called herself Lucille. And everyone just called her Grandma Moo. But she talked like that. Oh, Gonzo. She called me Gonzo. (laughs) Yeah, I know. And I remember explaining that to my wife. My grandmother was the resident wise woman. She was the one known for saying things like, fart means poop's on the way. That was my grandmother. She told it like she saw it. She was probably a drummer. If you were trying to think of something and you couldn't remember it, she'd say, it's probably a lie. And I remember, really? See? And I've never seen the two of them in the same place. Now, my grandmother was very colorful. But in fairness, she had lived a pretty rough life. Her husband was a bus driver for the Chicago Transit Authority, CTA. He was an incessant alcoholic, but I always saw him smile. I never saw him come down, apparently. <laughs> but I can't imagine a guy that drinks all the time and drives a bus. That's no. a terrible combination, right? Well, they could do it in the old days, maybe. Maybe in those old days they paid you in scotch. But, uh, yeah, and it was Chicago. So this was the man, who some of you have heard the story, refused to run money from one side of Chicago to the other for Italian, certain Italian families. And they weren't very happy about his refusal. It pushed him down a flight of steps right in front of my grandmother. She never recovered. His name was Charles. From that point on, she would wear the perfume Charlie, which I always thought was a little icky. But I remember telling my wife these stories, and my wife was like, well, I love your colorful euphemisms. I was like, no, that's actually my grandmother. And I actually spoke to her right before she died. She was in a nursing home. And she said, oh, God, my wife's pulling the phone away from my ear, and she looks at me with this horror because she realizes she'd been making fun of me. And I was just, I, I do a pretty good impression of my grandmother, I'll let you know. I'm in jail. What? Grandma, what do you mean you're in jail? <laughs> I'm in jail. Yeah. See, a nursing home for her was jail. Yeah, of course. She said, the person before next to me used to moan and moan and moan, but now the person next to me is in a coma, so they don't bother me much. <laughs> that was my grandmother. But no grandmother that I've ever met is as colorful as this one. Yeah. <laughs> Well, let's see how she compares to this little cookie in Scripture. Let's put things into perspective. You ready for this? Here we go. Kings, remember this? Here's the northern or the southern side to your left. All right. So, in other words, if it goes straight down, if there's an arrow down, that means it's a son. So, after Solomon, his son was Rehoboam, who had a son named Abia. Can you see that? Who had a son named Asa, who reigned for 41 years, mind you. Who had a son named Jehoshaphat who names their son Jehoshaphat. Who has a son named Jehoram, who has a son named Ahaziah. Do you see all that down there? (coughs) Now, this is why I'm telling you that. Is that, for the most part, up to this point, God bless you, it has been straight down the line, right? In other words, if you can chase the line, let's do this here. Rehoboam is David's grandson. Can Can you follow that? That means that Abiah is David's great-grandson. That means Asa is David's great-great-grandson. Y'all follow me on this? So, who is Jehoshaphat? What is his, how would you relate to David? Great-great-great-grandson. Does that make sense? Now, Jehoshaphat was a doofus. He was a godly doofus, but he was a doofus in this sense. He was all about unity, but at the expense of holiness. And God doesn't ask you to give one up for the other. 
He, and by the way, unity is not always good. Unity is great with God's people. But unity with cancer or unity with a live raging bull is not a good idea. You really don't want to be united with a live raging bull. Unity, unity with Ebola. Do not recommend it. And he has now become unified with the king of the north. Now, notice the north is not exactly a straight line now. It's a lot more colorful. So let's put it this way. Solomon's commander's name is Jeroboam. Can you see that up there at the top? How long does Jeroboam reign for? 41 years. He, no man's sin is mentioned more in scripture by name than this guy. I mean, imagine you're the guy known in scriptures. Oh, you're the guy with the sin of, the sin of Bob. Oh, yeah, they kept in the sin of Bob. Oh, and then the next generation, they kept with the sin of Bob. Oh, and they did it just like Bob. You know, you, then Bob becomes synonymous with sin. Mm. What's even crazier is there's two Jeroboams. Who names their son Jeroboam after this famous? You get it. So Jeroboam has a couple sons. Well, he has one son. You see that? But notice the arrows change colors, or change directions, and that's because he was murdered. So, that guy has a son who was murdered by this guy, who has a son who was murdered by this guy, who committed suicide, and was replaced by his commander, Omri. That's how that plays. Now, son of Omri, that's our seventh character, that's Ahav. Ahav, by the way, is as big of a jerk as anyone's been spiritually. God actually makes mention of the fact that he is, he is really going after God's nerve. But he marries Jezebel. And remember, Jezebel is the princess of Sidon. That's north the area around Lebanon today. So whether he marries her because he thinks she's fine, Josephus says she was fine looking. Yeah. <laughs> now, that's really interesting because Josephus certainly wasn't around in those days. But I'll tell you what, it doesn't matter how fine looking a girl is. If she is that wicked, she's just not that fine. You know, it's, it's like you can take a big pile of horse poo and you can cover it in chocolate icing. So it looks good on the outside. But you know the inside's really ruining the deal. Now the reason I say that is, is that what Ahab knew, Ahab knew, was how to get peace through political marriage. So he marries, and I remind you, she's the princess, but she's only the princess because her dad, Ethbaal, was the high priest of Sidon who murdered the current king so he could become king. His daughter was Jezebel. And she was just like her dad. Didn't have a problem with any of that. So if you look at that, they have a daughter, and the daughter's name is Atalia. Atalia, by the way, marries Jehoshaphat's son. That's how they get union. So Ahab, if you think about it, Ahab gets union with the north through his marriage to the princess. He gets union with the south, that's Judah, through his daughter marrying their son. Because after all, you're really not going to blow up some, you know, where your daughter is. That's kind of the idea. And she is a chip off of the same nasty cookie. Natalia, we're going to find out, is much like mom. Mom, I remind you, murdered a guy because he wouldn't give up his family vineyard so that her husband can have a vegetable garden. So what ultimately happens, if you kind of look at this, is that Yehoram, that's Jehoshaphat's son on the left, can you see that, had married Italia. Now if you have a pen or a pencil, draw, write that next to it, you know, and that's that Yehoram, who, who reigned for eight years, married Italia. Now the reason I have you put that there. It's because that means that Achatia, you see the next guy, is the son of Atalia. Does that make sense? And that means that Achatia is the grandson to Jezebel and Ahab. That's one of their grandparents. Now, Yehu, Yehu, who was the guy from last two weeks, the fast and furious, all out but not all in guy, kills both kings, the king of the north and the king of the south. The king of the north during that particular time was Ahab's son, Yoram. He is killed by Yehu, which leaves a vacancy in the north. No king up there now because he's dead. And he happens to try to kill every other 
family member, so there's going to be no more Ahabites, if you will, that are actually going to do that. But he also kills the king of the south, who I read you as Jehoshaphat's grandson, Achatia, who happens to be Atalia's son. So that means there's a vacancy in the south, too. Think of it as if Scotland had a king, and England had a king, and the king of the north, Scotland, it's easier since we're English here, he was a really horrible guy, didn't like the Lord at all, and so what happens is some renegade comes over and kills him and takes the throne, but he also winds up killing the king of England while he does it as well. As well. So there's a vacancy down there. Does that make sense? So what we have at this point is the commander of the north kills the king to become the king, kills the king of the south, and that space is just kind of left open. Now, I remind you what that means is that Atalia just lost her son. And she lost her son to Yahu, the guy who winds up killing Moses King. And that takes us into chapter 11. When Natalia, the mother of Ahasia, saw that her son was dead, she arose and cried. At, no, that's not what it says. She arose and destroyed all the royal heirs. Go ahead, Bob. We're now in verse to, yeah, there should be yeah, yeah, one of those sides. <clears throat> now, okay, well, let me just say this while Bob's fighting verse 2. Yep. This is the daughter of Jezebel, the wife of Jehoram, the mother of Ahatia, who follows Yahu's example of dynasticide, follows her mom's example of being a horrible woman. Remind you, her mom's Jezebel. Good, that's not distracting. <laughs> so what does she do? There's a vacancy in the south, so guess what she decides to do? Kill the rest of her family. You know, imagine it's like, hi, grandma's there. Hi, kids. I came here to, I, I, and she decided she kills all of her kids and grandkids. That's a great mom for you. And she does that for what reason? She wants to throw it. Much like her mom's. Verse 2. <clears throat> but Je- Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being murdered, and they hid him and his nurse in the bedroom from Athaliah, so that he was not killed. Don't miss what's happening here. I won't do this with every verse, but we have to set the scene, otherwise you're going to be lost. Yehoshiva, by the way, which means God is God's covenant, or if you will, God of seven, is the daughter of King Yoram, but also happens to be, according to Second Chronicles 22, the wife of the high priest. His name is Yehoiada. He will be coming. He will play big into this whole situation when we meet this kid. Yehoiada is the high priest. She kills everybody in her family. I mean, we're not talking about just her killing a bunch of people. She's killing. It's like, you do not want to go to a family reunion at this house. Grandma's having everyone over tonight, you guys. Let's go. Don't worry. Don't bring anything. You won't need it. And she kills everyone. And as she goes mental and starts killing people, there is a godly woman here that's not going to let that happen. And I love the fact that in the King's books, God always tends to pair a nasty, horrible woman in contrast to a really cool gal. For instance, this nasty uh, Atalia's mom. Remember what her mom's name is? Jezebel. While God starts to show us how horrible Jezebel is, he also shows us the Shunammite woman. Remember the one that actually built the addition on the house for for Elia? Now, the reason I say that is, God doesn't want men looking at women and going, oh, they're all evil. There's Delilah, there's Eve. I mean, he shows us that even in the face of a horrible woman, who, by the way, is the most profile woman in the country, I want to mind you. If you, I mean, in Israel, she was the one woman everyone knew by name. And now we have, in the South, you have this girl. God wants to make sure you know there's a godly woman. Even when women are kind of highlighted this, this is what a famous woman looks like. There are still godly women, and God takes notice of them. God is not lumping everyone together. And that's the same for men. 
If there's like if all the men on the planet were horrible, but one man was refusing to bow, you notice he tends to make his way in the scripture. And in this situation, this woman takes a baby that we're going to find is a one-year-old, hides him for the moment. Well, Josephus would say, by the way, in the midst of mattresses in a room that sort of stored mattresses. But basically, she's killing everyone, and she goes and hides this kid so that the kid doesn't get killed from grandma. And by the way, that would be grandma. Who is she in relationship to this baby? It's her mom. It's, she's, uh, she's his aunt. Because it is her brother's son that she spares. If that makes sense. Which means, by the way, she is in essence uh, sort of stepdaughter to Atali. She was in line for the knife as well, was it? Well, you know, it seems like that none of the girls had to be killed. Because it isn't like here where they could take the throne. The only woman that has ever sat as queen in Israel is this one. You can argue about things like Golda Meir and all that, but we're talking about queens. That's where we're going to go. So, so she hides this kid. He's one year old, and she's a decent woman. Is that fair? Well, let's see what happens. Verse 3. So he was hidden with her in the house of the Lord six years, while Talia reigned over the land. You see this? It's the one place they knew she would never look. The temple, because she's not going there. What it says, actually in Second Chronicles, is that she went and ransacked parts of the temple and made a temple of Baal and actually dumped all of those things in the temple of Baal. So she basically went shopping in the temple to take whatever she wanted, looted it, and then brought it into the temple of Baal. Just like mommy, by the way, for what it's worth. So, you know, one thing is that the place had been, the temple's in terrible disrepair, so the gal's like, I know where we can hide this boy. We'll hide him in the temple. That's certainly no place Natalia's going to go from this point on. You know you're in trouble when the person that's ruling the country would never be seen in church. And if, they're in, if they are seen in church, they look so horribly uncomfortable, they wish they weren't there. Okay. Verse 1. In the seventh year, Yehida sent and brought the captains of hundreds of bodyguards and escorts and brought them into the house of the Lord to him. And he made a covenant with them and took an oath from them in the house of the Lord and showed them the king's son. Then he commanded them, saying, This is what you shall do. One third of you who come on duty on the Sabbath shall be keep, keeping watch over the king's house. One third shall be at the gate of Shittor, and one third at the gate behind the escorts. You shall keep watch of the house, lest it be broken down. The two contingents of you who go off duty on the Sabbath shall keep the watch of the house of the Lord for the king. But ye shall surround the king on all sides, every man's man with his weapons in his hand. And whoever comes within range, let him be put to death. You are to be with the king as he goes out and as he comes in. What's that? So the captains of the, hun- of the hundreds did according to all that Yehoshua the priest commanded. Each of them took his men who were to be on duty on Shabbat with those who were going off duty on Sabbath and came to Yehoshua the priest. And the priest gave the captains of hundreds the spears and shields in which belonged to King David that were in the temple of the Lord. Stop there for a second. I want to remind you, it's been 160 years since those things have been used. 150, 60 years since they've been used. Now, there is one high priest, and what we're going to find is he is all over this text. Interesting. You can pick up loads of bits. Oh, it's so beautiful. There is Now, I'd like you to consider the fact there is a biblical promise that the Mishiach the Messiah has to come from the line of David. And the enemy knows that. So what would happen if you killed the entire line of David? Then the Bible's false. Then God's a liar. Because he promised this. And either he's incapable of fulfilling his promise, or he's lying, or he doesn't know everything. And the enemy tries. 
He will always fail, but I'd like you to consider conceivably here at this moment the way it's listed. It looks like if this boy had been eliminated, that would have been the end of it. There would be no Messiah. And yet, in all of this, clearly, God is not going to let that happen. But the last thing you probably would have thought is, this will be redeemed by a baby. Now, I'd like you to consider the fact that that baby is a rightful, is the rightful king. He is the rightful son of David. And yet, he, we meet him, don't miss this, as a baby. We meet him as a baby who, by the way, has to be tucked away because of the murderous plans of the person who is not right to take the throne. Who, by the way, seeks to murder everybody else to get rid of them all. That should sound familiar. By the way, looking in both directions. Behind us, that's Pharaoh during Moses' day. And forward, that's Herod and Jesus's. And there again is our Ketzat Poma Ocham. That little here and more there. But now, the whole point of this now is how do we get the right king? How do we get the right king back when the usurper has taken the throne? Because that's our point in all of this. Look at how it starts. Yehoiada, it took one person. And this one person, by the way, I'd like you to consider, how long did the queen reign before this happened? Six years. This means this is the seventh year. Did you notice that? Why is that important? Is there any other seven-year period to which at the end, the rightful king takes the throne? Revelation? Yes, the tribulation. Which, by the way, we also have a usurper claiming the throne. By the way, in Jerusalem, for what it's worth. Claiming to be the one thing worshipped. For which the rightful king will come. And God, again, is setting us up for that. But what about in our own lives? What happens if, and it's imperative to recognize that so much of Christianity today is so shallow because it's all about Jesus being Savior and not about Him being Lord. Mm. Hey, who in the right... I, I don't get how somebody would say no to Jesus is saving if that's all they thought it was. Who in their right mind would not say, well, you know what, I don't want to go to hell either. I'm not sure there is one. I'm not sure, but hey, well, I might as well hedge my bets. I mean, you would seem to be, you'd have to be so proud to be stupid to not say yes if that's all it was. The Lord thing, I understand why people have a problem with it. We as Christians have a problem with Lordship. And we know He deserves to be Lord. But what happens in our own lives if that's the case? If what's really happening in our own lives is, well, Jesus, I'm cool with all of that, but in the end of it all, the rightful king has to take the throne or this isn't going to go well. Jesus never says, as long as you're willing to call me Savior, we're good. It demands that we confess the Lord. And many of us are familiar with the whole horrible cycle of judges, where God blesses, they turn their eyes off of the blesser, and put them on the blessing, then they turn their back on God, they find themselves in captivity, life really stinks, they cry out to God, He raises up a deliverer, they're rescued, and He blesses them, and it goes that way over and over and over again. The whole book of Judges is that. And you know, for some people... It is their whole life. Well, Christianity is like a roller coaster. According to whom? Life is a roller coaster, and if, in the sense of some circumstances are good, some circumstances are bad. And if your life is dictated by circumstances, your life will be a roller coaster too. But joy is not a roller coaster. Happiness is. When the joy of the Lord happens, it is our strength. And we don't have to let Things blast us like they used to. Let me ask you, what ends, what does it take to stop the season of Judges? The rightful king takes the throne. That's how Judges stops. Yes. Is it yeah, who gets the right king? He didn't want Saul, but he wanted David. Yeah. He wanted David. People say, give us a king like the other nations. Yeah. God goes, you don't want a king like the other nations. They're like, yeah, we do. We want a bad one so we can be like the other nations. He goes, I'll give you a king like the other nations. Then I'll give you the king I want. That's the point. 
No. Here's the point in all that. How do we get Jesus back on the throne where he belongs? Well, look at what it says. Here's the first thing. It started in verse 4 at God's house. Did you notice that? He brought people into the house of the Lord and he made a covenant with them. And then it took commitment. And when it took commitment, then he showed them the right king. Man, how important it is as church to show them the right Jesus. There's a million quote-unquote Jesuses out there. The homeboy Jesus, the black Jesus, the essay Jesus, the Jesus that smokes pot. It is amazing what's out there right now. The gay Jesus. The, you know, it's like there's so many things. And basically, if someone just wants to go and make some super nice guy, put him in a robe. He always seems to have a robe and a beard, except the female Jesus. And, you know, and then it all, it's, it's total blasphemy. Yeah, completely. And yet, who's, but here's the problem. They don't have a problem blurting that stuff out through a megaphone, but we have a problem whispering his name. So they don't even have a comparison. Well, they had the, the black bear doing the uh, sermon for the, for the wedding, didn't it? Well, you know, and, and here's the point in all that. Here's the yeah, point. As you say. Yeah, is that... Church should be a place where you meet Jesus, the real one. And we don't have to, to culturalize Jesus. We don't, not, we, don't need to make, we don't need to give him, you know, converse shoes instead of sandals because people won't relate. Or put a spliff in his hands. Or all the things that people do. They need to meet the real one. And there, they brought out the real one to committed people. And then he says, now here's our plan. Now his plan is mildly brilliant in this. What day of the week are going are gonna to have the most people serving at the temple? The Sabbath. And when would you find the most people on the most people day? At ship change. Because at the ship change, you have all the guys who are coming off, and you have all the other guys coming on. That is the one moment when you have the most guys there that would not attract attention because every shift change during Sabbath looks like this. You have two-thirds of your priesthood there during that time. So one, guy, one group's going off, another group's going on. Are you with me so far? And he goes, this is what happens. At the temple, that's where he needs to be revealed. And this is what I want you to do. I want you to circle him. Now, there's a decent practical reason for that, because there's already an incoming king, or we can guess, is not a queen, who is not going to take this lying down. But I get the idea. Jesus needs to be, or the rightful king needs to be in the middle of it all. He needs to not only be in the middle of it all, but what he says is, if anything tries to get in here to take this place, to get at this center, it needs to die. Now let me say that again. Jesus needs to be at the center. And if anything tries to get at that, it needs to die. It needs to be that important. My question is, why didn't anyone revolt during these six years? Right. Might I suggest to you this? Because they didn't know they had a different choice. I remind you, in the eyes of everyone but Yehoiada and his wife, they think every royal heir is dead. He's a best-kept secret at this moment. But he needs to be brought out. The people have no hope because there is a horrible, rotten person on the throne and everybody's seeing it. But no one thinks there's another option. Maybe it takes six years to... to for people to realize how bad it is or something, does it? I don't well, know. Well, you know, the book of Kings, one of, or I'm sorry, the book of Judges, one of the things you learn is people develop a tolerance to misery. The first time the people were actually, you know, in bondage was eight years. And then they cried out and God raised up a deliverer. The second time they were in bondage, it was 18 years. Then they cried, then they cried out for a deliverer. The third time, it was 20 years. Then they cried out. Now, I don't know about you, but my thought is, it's getting bad, let's cry out. 
Not, oh, let's see if we can outdo our last one. The record's 18 years, you guys. Let's suffer for 19. That, that's just stupid, right? That's the crazy part of this. But listen, there are a lot of people out there that are under the tyranny of a very wicked person who does not deserve the throne. They just don't know there's a real choice. And you are the ones who know that there is. And Jesus needs to be brought to them. Does that make sense? So we had a coup during a shift change. We've got the priests need to do this. And what happens is they get the, they get the weaponry of King David, the invincible conqueror that he was. Verse 11, let's see it play out. Then the escort stood, every man with his weapon in his hand, all around the king, from the right side of the temple to the left side of the temple, by the altar and the house. Where is the king going to be revealed specifically? Yeah, at the temple. Where? Southern, southern steps. Yeah, right to the right side of the southern steps, by what? According to this. Yes, what altar are we talking about here? In the temple. Yes, the altar of sacrifice. This, listen, united we have to stand here. We have the spears and the shields of David. And notice what it says. Every man stood with weapons in his hand all around the king from the right side of the temple to the left side of the temple. We have to be united at the altar. Remember, the altar is the place where we give it all up. What's the altar for us when we talk about the rightful king of Jesus? It's the, it's the cross. It's the cross that says... There's two, though, I remind you. you know, I remember saying about 20 years ago in the ministry, there are two crosses that need to be preached, and I, I basically just hear one. One is the cross of Christ for which we were redeemed. The first cross. The second one is the one we're supposed to pick up and follow. Jesus did. Because unless we pick up our own cross and follow him, he says we're not even worthy to be called his disciples. Does that make sense? I never hear the second one. Nobody wants to tell you about how sacrificial and surrendered we need to be as Christians. But I'll tell you what, in the last 20 years, I don't even hear the first cross anymore. But we need to be united. And here's the problem, and you know this. If we all locked arms around the cross, and we said, we want to reveal the real Jesus, who's going to be our biggest outspoken opposition to that? Who do you think? Yeah, people calling themselves Christians. They're like, wait a minute, that's not, they don't represent all of us. You know, they're kind of the fundamentalists, and we'll have some category. And there becomes our problem. But we need to be united at the cross. This is what Paul says in Galatians 6.14. God forbid that I would boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I the world. He's like, God forbid that anything come out of my mouth like that. That isn't the cross. To the Corinthian, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And here we are. Our arms are locked. It's like we're a gift wrap. They don't know what's behind us yet. We do. Verse 12. And he brought out the king's son, put the crown on him and gave him the testimony. They made him king and anointed him, and they clapped their hands and said, Long live the king. Woo! They brought out the king's son, but when they present him, what's the first thing they do to him? Put on a crown on him. What does that do? Makes him official. Declares him your boss. It declares him Lord. By the way, Yehoshua, God our Savior. Jesus, our Savior. Christos, the Greek for Mashiach, the Anointed One, the Lord. He needs to be both. Yes, He is Savior. 
but he saved us and has a right to be our Lord. But not only did they put him a crown. So, by the way, they didn't ask the other people to do it. The people who were presenting the king put a crown on him. Did you notice that? And by the way, in this case, it's the high priest. It is the that's clear because everyone's saying, long live the king. They're not going, who's this guy again? What's he doing? Now, what's the second thing they did? Yes, they gave him. What does that mean? They gave him the testimony. What's that? Why would they give him the law? Yes. Because in Deuteronomy 17, it says that there are requirements for a king in Israel. He should be Jewish. That's appropriate. He cannot amass three things. Horses and chariots from Egypt. Foreign wives. And lots and lots of gold. By the way, how many of those things did Solomon amass? Mm-hmm. You know, he, he was like, so what else is there? But What else is there to break? No. <clears throat> but it says... Let me tell you what he should do instead. It isn't that he shouldn't amass wealth. He should amass the real wealth. Mm -hmm. He is to write a copy of the law in his own hands and to read it daily that he would not lift his head above his brothers. I love that. In other words, he goes, I imagine if you were, if you would, that if you were given a position, one of the first things you had to do was can write out all scripture. Wow. Have you ever had to write out scripture? When I memorized scripture, that was the first thing I'd do. Is I'd write it out and I'd write out little those little cards yeah. and then try to pull them out every once in a while. And sometimes I put my thumb across the line to see if I could remember that line. And because when you're writing it out, it takes another part of your brain to do that. Mm-hmm. But understand that was a requirement for every king. Uh, now, how many of them have done that? Well, and here's the point for us. That when we present that king, it needs to be at the altar of sacrifice because he's Savior. But he also needs to be publicly crowned because he's Lord. But he needs to stand with his word. Mm-hmm. Because if he stands with his word, then he's not the made-up Jesus. He's the biblical one. And we, we pair Jesus with the scripture. As Hebrews 10, 7 quotes Psalm 40, verses 6 and 7, when Jesus says, Behold, I come in the volume of the book. It's written to me. Jesus says in John 5, 39, You search the scriptures, thinking by them you possess eternal life. They're the ones that talk about me. Don't you find it weird? You're studying, looking for eternal life. It's right in front of you. But you refuse to come to me that you'd have life. You think just keep looking at a book and how strange it is you're reading my book about me and not recognizing me when I'm standing in front of you. You're reading it wrong, man. Obviously, it's a very loose diatribe of that. But you get the idea. And I just say, look at, what if, what if London, what if this happened in London? God's people locked arms at the cross. So we're going to show them a real Jesus. We are going to publicly declare Him Lord as well as Savior. And when we do that, by the way, we are going to make sure He's the, the Bible Jesus. Not the homeboy Jesus or whatever. Do you remember when Jesus ascended and the angels spoke to the people who were staring into the sky? And they say, why do you stand looking at that stuff? Why do you stand looking up like that? And then they say something really interesting to me. He says, this same Jesus that you saw go up this way will return in like manner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This, this, this Jesus. Not, there's going to be, a, in other words, and Jesus says, false Christs are going to come. There's going to be a whole lot of Jesuses. Take a trip down to Mexico and see how many Jesuses you meet there. Probably, there's probably a handful of them in Portugal. But, the real Jesus, the biblical Jesus, you've got to pair him with his word. So people are like, oh, come on, Jesus wouldn't do that. He loves everyone. I'm like, the problem isn't Jesus. The problem is your definition of love. Love will take you to the woodshed. But that's part of what love does. So they say, long live the king. That's our open declaration. Let this guy reign. By the way, he will reign for over four years. Four years. Okay, now, just because all the right things are happening does not mean everyone's going to be really happy about it. 
Who do you think is going to have the biggest problem with that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Old mom, old gangster granny. Verse 30, and now we're almost done because it, the rest of it kind of picks up in storyline. Now, when Talia heard the noise of the escorts and the people, she came to the people in the temple of the Lord. When she looked, there was a king standing by the pillar according to custom, and the leaders and the trumpeters were by the king. All the people were rejoicing and blowing trumpets. So Talia saw her clothing and cried out, Treason! Treason! Was it treason? Mm. Well, from her point of view, mm. from her point of view, it really was. Yeah, yeah. So it was all treason bad. Mm-hmm. What if it's treason yeah, against treason? Yeah. Or I'd say rebellion against rebellion. Yeah. Hey, we're already naturally rebellious, but what would happen if we were rebellious against the rebellion of God? Well, that's something to think about. That's like two wrong, you know, two U-turns. You're going back in the direction you started. All right. Verse 15. And Yehoiadah the priest commanded the captains of the hundreds, the officers of the army, and said to them, Take her outside on the guards, and slay, and slay the sword who follows her. And the priest had said, Do not let her be killed in the house of the Lord. So they seized her, and she went by the way of the horses' entrance into the king's house, and there she was killed. And Yehoiadah made a covenant between the Lord, the king, and the people. So they should be the Lord's people, and also between the king and the people. Notice, by the way, they weren't going to kill her in the temple. Because that was not the place to kill someone like that. That's the place to sacrifice. They're going to kill her outside the temple. But she is going to die. It is important to recognize there are two things that the Bible makes clear will never convert. And that's a horrible thought. One of them is the devil. We can probably lump into that the Antichrist. He doesn't appear to be <coughs> sensing it at all by the time we read the end of the story. False prophet, perhaps. Yeah, he probably he fits into that category. That sort of, <coughs> if you will, unholy, unholy trinity. Right, Muhammad. Sorry. The other thing the Bible makes clear is your flesh. Your flesh nature will never convert. And this is why God says you need to mortify it. It needs to die. Your flesh nature needs to die. Because, and by the way, if it doesn't convert, it dies. Now that sounds a little bit like what you spoke about. But the idea of it is, is that God knows how dangerous that can be. Because the flesh wages war against the spirit. And I've learned this. If somebody really comes out and wants to kill you, all the diplomacy in the world will not make a difference. You can give them daisies every day of your life, but you'll be dodging bullets every time you do. And the enemy has no interest. The only peace that you can have with the enemy is to join his side. Which is not a recommendation. It's utter madness. But notice again, who is the one who makes the covenant with the people? Verse 17. Yehoiada. Who is he? He's the high priest. I remind you, the girl who actually hid the baby in the first place is his wife. Mm-hmm. Tucked the baby away, hid him in the temple, because after all, the queen's not going to look there. Finally he's revealed. How old is he now? Seven years old. Mm-hmm. How dare I ask? How old are you? Hmm. You're older than this king. You could probably beat him up, <laughs> though I don't recommend it. No, definitely you would. <laughs> you know, imagine that. <laughs> now, here's the thing: our last couple verses, by the way. What happens when the rightful king? actually gets enthroned. The covenant between God. What's that? The covenant God. Yes. The first thing is people get serious about the walk with God. The second thing, verse 18. 
and all the people of the land went to the temple of Baal and tore it down. They broke it, broke in pieces its altars and images and killed Mattan and priests and priests for the altars and the priests appointed others over the house of the Lord. Nice. Well done. Okay, now, do you remember there was an altar in the north in Israel? Do you remember who built it? Or had it built? Yeah, actually it was uh, Jezebel. So, Jezebel commissioned the Temple of Baal in the north. Who commissioned the Temple of Baal in the south? Her daughter. Natalia. Does that make sense? The uh, crab apple doesn't fall far from the crab tree. North, let's build a Temple of Baal. In the south, let's build a temple to Baal. The north one was destroyed by Yahu, remember? And he made it a refuse heap. That's where we put all of our together. In the south, who destroys the temple of Baal there? What does it say? People of the land. Yeah, the people did. That's revival, man. When people start tearing down, like, I'm not, not saying, you know what revival is? People are just going to start setting fire to all the, like, adult plays on. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, first of all, you tear down the temples in your own life. You tear down those places of the things you would worship that don't belong there in your life. And they didn't, by the way, just kind of lock the doors. Note that. They tore it down. It says they thoroughly broke into pieces. Now, why does God make clear that it's thoroughly broken into pieces? What's the difference? Might I say two words. Humpty Dumpty. What makes Humpty Dumpty such a tragic story? Because all the king's horses and all the king's men could not do anything but make an omelet. Right? The point is, when you thoroughly break something, it can't be repaired. So you've got a problem in your life and you just make it a little inconvenient, oh, you'll find your way to it. It needs to be more than just made inconvenient. It needs to be thoroughly broken down. Fair enough? Then what do they do? Well, there's, there's a guy that's actually, in essence, the spokesperson, the evangelist for Baal, if you will. And that guy, he is done. He will not be evangelizing anyone else for Baal anytime soon. Or ever. And that's what Elijah did as well, wasn't it? Elijah killed all the prophets of Baal yeah. or something? Yep. So here's my question in regards to that. When Elijah was calling, calling God to call down fire, why didn't God just take the fire and consume them all then? He could have, right? Fire could have just come down and BAM! There's, all those guys are gone. Yeah. Might I just recommend or con- for your consideration... Because God wanted to prove to them he was the real God before they died, so they had a chance to choose. Same in the, the great grace of God. Same in what? Same in Judah as well. Yeah, it's, it's such... Yeah, there's so many times where God defeats other people's gods to let them know he's the real one before something comes down. Egypt's a classic example of that. Right. So let's close this up. Verse 19. Then he took the captains of hundreds. By the way, who is the he? Yeah, Yehoiada. By the way, what you notice is he's gotten real busy in this chapter, hasn't he? That's going to become really important. By the way, would you imagine he's more than likely the surrogate dad to the boy king? I mean, after all, I remind you, his wife was the one who rescued the kid in the first place. Mm-hmm. Hit him in the temple. Well, who's the one guy you can expect in the temple? The high priest. He would be probably likely. So he took the captains of hundreds, the bodyguards, the escorts. That's the secret service you were. And all the people of the land. And they brought the king down from the house of the Lord and went by way of the gate of the escorts to the king's house. And they sat on the throne. Sorry, then he sat on the throne of the kings, which probably was a very large throne for such a small child. 
So all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet, for they had slain Athaliah with the sword in the king's house. Yerash was seven years old when he became king. This is how it ends. It ends, by the way, with the word. Well, let me ask you, what was the end result? The end result of the people. I'm sorry, of the city. Once the queen was deposed, and once the proper king took his throne. Yeah, the people not only rejoiced, but there was another really cool word in it. What? Yeah, the people had quiet. Mm. Wait a minute. Mm. The people had quiet. The, the, the people had quiet. So they were no revolting. What that? No more revolting. They didn't. Uh, there was no counter revolt or anything. People were at peace about it. What seems interesting is who died in Atalia's revolt. Atalia did. There was nobody else that stood with her. Nobody. She was a wicked queen. And there were people who served her. But nobody stood with her. Although you wouldn't know the difference. You've heard it already because it's horrific. I was just following orders. It's a cup. Repose. Peace. Quiet. Something that if we could sell in this city, people would buy like nuts. Just a little quiet. Am I the only one who has noise-canceling headphones, turns on the noise-canceling feature, and doesn't play music? <laughs> I find myself doing that almost as much as I... Actually, no, comfortably as much, if not more, than I actually do listen to music on. On a train... And someone is kind enough to want to share their disgusting, vulgar rap thing about how endowed and whatever they are. And I have no interest in listening to it. And you're like, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for noise-canceling headphones. <laughs> but what about my heart? When the usurper's on the throne and I let good things become bad things because I let them in the circle that they don't belong in. I lose my quiet. And God doesn't want you to lose your quiet. When we sang that first song today, that song was written from that place. That was written from that place of could you shut all that noise out and get it back to where it's just me and you. I hope you you realize that as we pray. That God tonight wants to do more than orbit your world. He wants to be the center of your universe. And I warn you, you'll never have the quiet. And the New Testament will use the word rest. Rest comes from peace. Not peace comes from rest. Peace is a unity with God. And that's where rest comes from. That's why Jesus would say, come to me when you're weary. Well, come to me at any point. But even if you're weary and heavy laden, I'll give you more than peace. Because you'll have peace with me by coming to me. I'll give you rest. Jesus is my peace. And the product of that is rest. I love that. I just want to pray for us tonight. Also, this was done on the Shabbat, mm-hmm. wasn't it? Ties in with the rest. It's exactly right. It is the the quiet that's supposed to be there. Yeah, talk about a Shabbat revolt. But I tell you what, shouldn't Shabbat be the time? Well, any moment should be the time. Every breath should be it. But shouldn't Shabbat be the time we take inventory? That moment, whatever that day we set aside for the Lord or whatever, which right now is this, Shouldn't this be time where we go and say, 
is there a king on the throne here? Because you were aware that the enemy would like you to believe that you could sit on that throne. But do you realize that you'll never sit on that throne? You think you're the master of your own destiny, then the enemy has had his way and he's sitting there and you don't even know it. Because the decisions you make are not the decisions of a sane person. If you were really sitting on the throne, but then you're hurting everyone, including yourself, with the choices you make, then you're more messed up than you think you are. Yeah. We have either Jesus will sit on the throne or the usurper will sit on the throne of your heart and convince you it's you maybe. But those are your only two people that are going to sit there. But tonight what we see is there was a successful coup to get the king back. And it was done by one high priest. Here's the best part. Who's the high priest in the New Testament? It's Jesus. He's actually both. And by the power of his Holy Spirit, he'll move in you right now. Now look at maybe you can't think of anything. That's fair. But let's say that if we actually say, Lord, search my heart right now. And if there's anything that has made its way into that circle that doesn't belong there, take it outside and kill it. Now, remind, I remind you, I'm not saying, while well, my wife's made it in there, kill my wife. That's what I'm saying. It's my attitude of putting her there that needs to die. Of my, prior, my misprioritization, that needs to die. But what if that happened tonight? Could you imagine? You may get the best night's sleep you've ever had. Because tonight, you may actually get the quiet you need. That he created you to have. But that quiet does not come without peace. Mm. Pray with me, would you please? And they named it, and that's the thing as well, wasn't it? Jesus, thank you for being our peace. Thank you for making peace between us and the Father at the cross, paying for all the iniquities that Isaiah has made clear have separated us between the Father and ourselves. Thank you for dying on the cross to be our Savior, the God who saves Thank you for raising from the dead and being our Lord, our Messiah, our Christ, who leads us in victory, triumphing over the handwriting of requirements that was contrary to us at the cross. And tonight, I pray that we could leave here with rest, with quiet. But I recognize that that quiet is not the reason why we want to come to you or shouldn't be the reason we come to you, but the product of it. If there is anything, God, that is in hard competition with you, that somehow in all of this has made its way to this place where even a good thing has become not a good thing because of the placement we've given it. Lord, reprioritize our hearts. Slay the things in our hearts that keep you from taking the throne like you should. We don't want to live a judge's life we want to have a life of freedom and joy. So tonight here, Jesus, we want to make that choice to make that covenant with you. Declaring Jesus, you as our Savior. Paying for all of our unrighteousness at the cross. And declaring you as our resurrected Lord. Handing our lives to you and saying, be enthroned at the throne of our hearts take your rightful place and from that Lord we pray for proper Christian unity not union with the world not union with the compromise 
but union with people who will stand at the altar arm in arm, declaring you as Savior and crowning you as Lord and seeing you stand in the volume of your book. Make us such people, I pray. And tonight, may we bring you peace and joy in our surrender and grieve you no more in our rebellion. We pray that we would be rebellious only to our rebellion and treason only to our treason. In Jesus' name, in your name, Jesus.